one thing I wanted to comment on was in your on on your website in one of your profile pictures. You have a very unique tie on, the penguin tie. <laughs> in fact, I have it here for my presentation you, today. Really. Wait, what's your presentation on again? Uh, making story models. It's ways to do visual designs for your story. Mm-hmm. And I've got a book coming out on this, and I've got a teachable course coming out on this. Uh, today's presentation is for the Grand Rapids Region Writers Region Grand Rapids Regional Writers Group. A local writers group meets once a month with different topics. Oh, and okay. the um, Past president has taken my story models course before, and so they were saying, "Yeah, you could bring that to the group." <laughs> it, where did you get that tie? Because it's it's got a huge penguin on it. <laughs> it's it's a, a it's a penguin on a moon of Jupiter with another <laughs> penguin in the background. Uh, it was a gift from my sister in law and her family. Mm-hmm. Um, her youngest is well, okay, he's a. 16, 17 now, so kids' tastes may have changed, but he was a huge Penguin fan, much as I am. And I'm a science fiction writer, so when he saw a penguin on a moon, he said I had to have that. <laughs> have you have you ever seen the documentary March of the Penguins? Long time ago. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, it is really cool. Uh, penguins aren't something that I normally think about too much. Well, because, I mean, we don't really have them. Mm-hmm. I don't know where, Antarctica, North Pole, I think that's pretty much. Uh, a lot place. of the southern continents have got varieties of penguins that aren't necessarily the cold weather. They're moderate weather. Okay. Um, Madagascar, I think, has some. Really? Maybe, if not Madagascar. But but wow. areas of South America and such have got penguins. Again, my my nephew could give you chapter and verse on this because when he was 10 years old, that was his entire dream was he was going to become a, uh, I can't even remember the official term, but he knew it, the term for ornithologist. He was going to become an ornithologist studying penguins. (laughs) Well, I can imagine too, like the tip of Argentina, Chile. Yes. um, Because you're you're still far away from Antarctica, but you're the closest Mm -hmm. that you're going to get. So, yeah, I can imagine that they have penguins down there. It's kind of I, weird if you see them on a documentary or something. It's like, that's a jungle with a river with a penguin swimming in it. It just violates all of your impressions of oh, penguins. Wow. Yeah, I wouldn't even think about that. A penguin in that sort of climate or environment. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm always picturing ice and, yeah. you know. But species adapt. Yeah, no, hundred percent. That's true. Mm-hmm. It, this is kind of a, a random question. Just speaking on this whole topic, um, would you ever go travel to Antarctica somewhere extreme like that? I cannot imagine getting the opportunity, but if I had it and somebody could take care of my cats, I would do it. <laughs> uh, because as a writer, everything is research. Mm-hmm. everything is something that I can file away and who knows where it will come out later. Uh, Neil Gaiman has a metaphor for this that he, he talks about life as a compost heap. And you put experiences in the top and let them 
break down and, and integrate into the soil and you pull rich story loam from the bottom. Mm. And so I'm trying to take this everything is research mentality. Um, to, to Sorry to your audience to get a little gruesome here. No, not at all. When uh-huh. I had my colonoscopy, they assumed, since everybody does, that I would want to be sedated. Mm. And I said, I have a choice. <laughs> and they said, well, yeah. And I said, it's research. Yeah. And so I ended up not sedated. Mm-hmm. And watching the procedure on the video screen and talking to the doctor and talking to the nurses and ended up actually talking about my books because one of the nurses was one I'd had at a previous hospitalization, so she remembered me as an author. And so I'm sitting there with something up my something and <laughs> and pitching books. Wow. How, how long ago was this? Was that three years now? I think it was three okay. years. Wow. I had a lot of medical issues a couple years back and learned a whole lot of things about the medical business for research for stories that I never wanted to know, but <laughs> it have like with some of the like recent work that you ha- you've had, have you started incorporating like some of that? A little bit. Um it, it's again, it's a, it's almost not a conscious thing, but but now when I'm writing hospital scenes or mm. sick bay scenes or whatever, there's a little more verisimilitude, let's say, because I've got that patient experience fresh in my mind. And I've been talking to all these professionals, so I'm pulling in bits and pieces that I'm probably much more aware of nutrition in my stories, for example, okay. and uh, much more aware of emergency procedures. Um, not that mine was an emergency in terms of ambulance or anything, mm-hmm. but I've been watching and studying this and learning things that are, oh wow, this is what happens when you've got uh, when you've got a patient in this condition, and this one goes in right away, and this other one, no, they can wait, and all oh, this one shouldn't have waited, but we didn't know, and here's why. So it's it's not my main field, but accidents and illness happen in any story potentially. I know what you're saying with going back to your compost heap uh, analogy. I've had, it's interesting when I tell people my background and what I currently do, because I'm a software developer, um, which hopefully later we can talk about that. Um, But how I got to be a software developer is a bunch of twists and turns and a whole different branching off of different paths of my life and I did used to work in the medical field I worked in a hospital um, I worked in a research lab uh, orthopedic research lab but then too I mean I was a sales rep for a beverage company I was a sales rep for medical supplies and and I worked in insurance and then I did this and that and lo and behold here we are sitting Mm -hmm. with each other but yes the medical field is so diverse. Um, I mean, I, I have friends who are doctors, and even the different specialties that you can go into, different patients you can see. Uh, yeah, I totally get that you can use stories from your experience uh, in that field in your stories now and be mm-hmm. able to like better speak to that. 
versus if you're just getting your, you know, if you're just watching ER and yeah. <laughs> just using that as like your base, you know, your uh, basis for what what you write in your books. Yeah. Not that ER is bad. Well, <laughs> even ER, you can can learn from if you're observant and have good memory that their research mm-hmm. is significantly better than my completely uninformed research. Theirs isn't precise to the way a hospital would be, but I also I, I have an approach to research which infuriates somebody but pleases a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're familiar with the bell curve and standard deviations. I think of if you take, quote-unquote, knowledge of the field, Mm -hmm. whatever the field happens to be, Mm -hmm. the left side of the bell curve doesn't care. Mm -hmm. They want explosions. They want chase scenes. They want uh, romance scenes. They don't care. Mm -hmm. You go up into the 2-plus, 3-plus standard deviation area, you'll never get it right to please them. Mm -hmm. Those experts are never going to be happy with you because they can't agree with each other. Mm -hmm. So trying to get it right for them is a waste of your time. The zero to one standard deviation people, they just sort of want to see that you got the language right. They want to see that you're talking something that sounds like science. Mm -hmm. My sweet spot is between one and two. The educated layman, the educated people who have been around the field, I want to be right enough for them. Mm-hmm. ER was ER the one that was started by Michael Crichton or was that the other one at the same time Chicago Hope no, I think you're right Michael Crichton My, and Crichton yeah. was a medical doctor before he was an author and the research on that was for television pretty darn good mm-hmm. and sometimes they took liberties that for dramatic purposes that doctors would scream about but I mean talk about our job if somebody really, really wanted to do accurate computer programming, it would be the dullest thing anybody has ever put to film because 95% of it is up here in our heads and it fascinates us. And to other people, it's the most boring thing imaginable. I mean, you and I know that we're getting paid to solve puzzles all day. We are being paid to do mental tricks that solve a purpose, that make people happy, that that satisfy a customer need, but we're essentially, we're getting paid to solve puzzles. Mm -hmm. So for us, that is fascinating. For a person hearing us describe it, the eyes glaze over. And so, so they have to dramatically take some of that medical and shortcut it and amplify it Mm -hmm. because they just otherwise would have something too boring. So, so I, I think ER isn't bad. Yeah. I think living it is better. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I totally get that. Um, this, I don't know if, like, fascination is the best word, but this um, affinity, this, like, being drawn towards, like, science, how, how did this start for you? Was it from, like, as a child, like you were always interested in science, et cetera? It it literally, I cannot remember a time that I wasn't. Um, It's that far back. Um, I'm I'm old. I was around for Star Trek when it was just Star Trek, and it was 
on first run TV. I was a little too young to to get to choose what we watched to be aware of it. Mm-hmm. So it took until syndicated reruns that I got the idea of what Star Trek was. Um, but but it's like this is fascinating stuff and Lost in Space, which I cringe now. It's so bad. It's well, it's I don't. It's intentionally this, yeah. campy. Okay. It came out essentially at the time of the '60s Batman and and other camp shows. So to a degree, it's intentionally campy. But okay. just in terms of of even vague attempts at getting the science right, they don't. They're telling an adventure story with science trappings, that, that left side of the bell curve, mm-hmm. um, which made people happy. I just, today, it's it's too many logic holes that, as a kid, who could see those? Now, mm-hmm. I can see them. Yeah. Uh, I would have spaced Dr. Smith within about two episodes. But, of course, he became essentially the star, him and the robot, because of their campy antics and... Their ability to, you could build plots around their schemes and, and make all sorts of complications for the story. Mm-hmm. Star Trek at least gave vague nods to trying to get the science right. Uh, sometimes laughably bad nods, but they at least made the effort. But when you're six and seven, you can't tell the difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I remember on your on your website you had mentioned that um, you would tell stories as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just curious, did any of the stories that you told as a kid, did they actually end up in like later works? Did you kind of reuse them or? Most of them I don't remember. Um, I, I don't know why I can remember every last detail of the software I'm working on and all sorts of things. I have very little detailed memories before high school, mm-hmm. just just the way it is. So I can't say that any of them consciously made it in. Um, they were essentially like just about any kid. I had imaginary friends, but my imaginary friends had great adventures. Mm-hmm. And I remember the imaginary friends. I remember the monkey that sat in the back seat with me. But what the monkey was doing, I can't to this day say. Um, And I almost had an example there of one that actually lasted through, and now I can't remember what it is. But again, it's in the compost pile. Mm -hmm. It is in there somewhere. Um, Around high school, I start getting stories that have some echoes today. Um, But but honestly, those those early childhood, it's just a blur. (laughs) And growing up, you had a big family? Uh, four kids. Four Mom kids. and dad. Okay. That's, yeah, that's kind of me. So three siblings. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, same. Um, where are you in the order? I am third. Third? Okay. I am the oldest Ooh, in my family. Ooh, that's a responsibility. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Got to be the bad influence. Yeah. And it's kind of funny the gap between me and then the youngest is almost 10 years and it's staggering. There are similarities cause we're a family, but there's also differences. Cause I mean, 10 years, we grew up in like different times. It doesn't kind of seem like it. I don't know if you feel the same way compared to your siblings. Um, well, like how old is the oldest from you? Uh, my brother Steve is 12 years older than me. 
Oh, so yeah. he grew up in the 60s, hippies, Vietnam era. He was never a hippie, mm-hmm. but of course that was the culture, the music and everything. And I am 12 years later, I'm right smack in the whole 80s generation oh, and Gen everything. X. I don't know where the dividing lines are on these. <laughs> I am told that by some people, I'm told I'm a baby boomer. Okay. Essentially, some people draw the line at Kennedy's assassination, and I was born eight months before. Oh, okay. So, okay. so there are those who say that's it. Then there are those who say, no, boomers ended at the, in 1960. I, it's not my place to, to define these demographics. <laughs> wow. So you're, yeah, that's like my father was 62. And my father likes to say that he is um, Han Solo in that they're like, his, like the people born in like 62 or like his graduating class and stuff are Han Solo because they're kind of caught in between like Baby Boom and Gen X. And they're kind of this Han Solo character in that they're kind of just rogue paving their own way, you know, as like Han kind of did in the movies. He's got his own ship. He kind of does his own thing um, from what I remember. It's been a while since I've seen those star wars movies um but yeah no i i think the demographics i always get fascinated kind of talking about it and seeing like now a new generation of kids coming up that are experiencing different things that like even i experienced and i'm not even that old either so who knows even hopefully what like one day when i have kids like what they'll experience and yeah, it's fascinating stuff. There's a great book, actually. It's called Generations by Neil Howe and William Strauss. It came out like 30 years ago, but they kind of dissect each generation going back to America's founding. And they see that it comes in cycles. There's generational personalities or generational archetypes that basically recycle every they say 80 years like a long human life and then you see the archetypes play out in people like again and again um very fascinating stuff there is always a reaction to the generation before that we have to set our own way Mm -hmm. and then along come the kids and they have to set their own way and what they don't realize is they're not necessarily inventing something new they are reinventing something old uh, to, to make a different analogy in our field in software. Uh, Steve McConnell, a brilliant architect, engineer, analyst, and writer, he talks about in one of his books how everything has been done before. We're just redoing it with different hardware, faster hardware, more widespread knowledge as the, as the industry grows, how there's not honestly in fundamental concept that much difference between cloud computing and timeshare Mm. and timeshare was the the Mm. thing in the 70s of we've got all this computing power that we can't possibly use so let's let other people use it and he says when you look at the basic building blocks of timeshare they're the basic building blocks of cloud the difference is in the era of timeshare a megabyte 
was a humongous amount of memory that nobody could imagine ever using. And nowadays, a megabyte can be a blog post. Yeah. So the technology capabilities change, and that causes reasons why, at some point, timeshare just was not technologically, economically feasible anymore. Mm-hmm. That the cost of computing had gotten so cheap that putting an actual computer on your desk was a whole lot cheaper and more effective than having you sign into a terminal to some university somewhere and all that. That, that okay. the, the economics had shifted, and now they have shifted back to the point where that computer out there with multiple terabytes can do all sorts of things that you could do on your desktop. Mm-hmm. It would just be swamping your power. So we go through these cycles, and I think that's a general pattern in the culture is learning the limits of what we have now, and so we work around it, but the workaround may very well be an earlier workaround that reached its limit then, and now we're finding new ways to do it. Going down this road and, and like your career in software, how did that initially start like did you initially start at microsoft or was there no no i i was never at microsoft i was uh microsoft mvp which is their program for recognizing people in the community who are helping other developers other users helping people learn to use their their tools oh okay and so it's um it's not open source because Microsoft in general doesn't do open source, but it's sort of the same concept of one of the values of open source is you've got so many people out there using it who can help other people learn how to use it. So you've got community support. The MVP program was their way of encouraging community support within their non-open source environment. Okay, gotcha. So And open source like... Like Linux is open mm-hmm. source, um, so you were involved in communities like that, helping yep. to build. Yep, I was involved in several different uh, .NET user groups uh, around the state. For your users who aren't programmers, or for your audience who aren't programmers, .NET is sort of a platform for building Windows apps and also Windows mobile apps and server apps. So primarily, it was started as Windows desktop apps, and I've been with .NET essentially since the beginning, and I helped form form or participated in different user groups around the state, which were specifically for .NET developers to help each other learn this stuff. Mm -hmm. Did you initially, like, did you go to school or, like, university for I went to school fighting every way I could not to be a programmer. Um. And I wanted to be a physicist. I lacked the math background to do it. I wanted to be anything but a programmer because a friend whom I trusted who worked in the field had pointed out, and this was 1980, I have no idea how these numbers correlate now, but he pointed out that programmers at that time had across industries the highest rates of alcoholism, suicide, and divorce of any field. Wow. And... I didn't want that. Yeah. Even though I loved programming, I didn't want that. But it was the only thing that really grabbed me and appealed to me. Um, I mean, I love physics, but but don't ask me to solve the problems. Programming, I could solve the problems. And eventually I reached this going back to a point we made kind of earlier. 
for a lot of people, it's horrendously boring and stressful and pressure. Oh, sure. Yeah. And so they're the ones with the alcoholism, suicide, and divorce. For me, they're paying me to solve puzzles. So the statistic didn't apply in my case, but I spent two and a half years in college trying to say I'm not a programmer. While I worked as a programmer professionally as part of my work study, but I'm not a programmer. Eventually it was, this is what I'm good at. Mm -hmm. And so I just went into it. And at one point during uh, summer break, I got a opportunity to program for a small local firm long since gone but but it was a growing thing then and all of a sudden my part-time job became a 60 and 70 hour a week job as the head programmer of a small growing company and I never actually went back to college because at that point I was like I'm learning more in my job every day than I do in the classroom I mean, let, let's think about it realistically Sorry for all you programming or computer science professors, but I'm going to drop some hard numbers on you. Drop it, Martin. <laughs> Let's assume you've got two programming classes in a semester. Mostly they want you in one, but let's assume you take two. Uh, 12 credits, let's say. Now, no, it's usually not 12 credits for two classes. It's really oh, eight credits. E okay, yeah. And very loosely, a credit equates to an hour of classroom time. So that's eight hours of classroom time in a week. Let's assume your projects that you work on are twice that much. So you're looking at 24 hours in a week of time spent on programming-related stuff. Actual time of that is probably more like four hours of actually solving a problem. For a 12-week course, is that a semester? 12 weeks. That sounds right. Okay, let's yeah. call it 16. So okay. we've got roughly three in a year. So you've got 64 hours of actual development time. In other words, a week. Mm -hmm. And so you do this for two semesters, for four years, you've got roughly 10 weeks of experience. Now, that's not that you're not learning stuff in there. I learned some valuable stuff. But I learned so much more doing the work and being responsible for meeting deadlines and being responsible for teaching myself technologies I didn't mm. know and so on that for me, it just didn't become practical anymore. I was learning so fast and growing so fast in a high-pressure job that the classroom had no appeal for me at that point. I have great respect yeah. for a couple of instructors. Uh, Dave Cook, who taught me the beginnings of everything I knew about computer graphics, largely launched my career, but mm. for the most part, I was learning faster in the job. Now, uh, that's so funny you bring this up because that's how I got my start was a coding boot camp actually in Detroit, downtown Detroit. And I feel like you see a lot of these pop up across the country now. And even the one that I did was in person, but they're all online now. Um, I'm trying to think of other examples. The one that I went to was called Grand Circus. I'm trying to think of other names. Um, I, they're kind of escaping me right now. Actually, it's funny. Michigan State, I just heard, is doing like a coding boot camp, like a highly localized, like 10-week course. Mm -hmm. It just full-time, just all in. 
I wanted to get your take on that and this boot camp, boot camp coding boot camp structure that has arisen. Is that something you think is valuable? Like gets people ready? Have you heard much about them? Uh, I have heard a lot about them. I have a great respect for them. Um, way, way back when in the Michigan area, I don't know if they ever repeated it, but they had what they called give camps, which is a bunch of developers get together and do charity projects for a weekend and include as part of the teams new students who are wanting to see what this profession is like. And that was an awesome experience. Um, the we're in a weird, different world from what I grew up with. So I don't know what kids are exposed to on the programming side these days. But certainly in my experience, they don't really know what programming is. They don't understand. Um, they and, and we on the geek side can be so blind to this. I remember in high school, a girl asking me and my friends who were working and solving a problem, how do you do that? And we were trying to explain to her, and eventually we real, realized she wanted to know how to log on and play games. That, that her perspective was so entirely different from ours. There's this gap sometimes that they're not aware of the possibilities that might fit them. Um, I, I want to cite my niece. When she was in high school, very smart woman, very social very connected. She had a pretty good head on her shoulders. When she got to college, she still had a good head on her shoulders. She was trying to decide what she wanted to do, something in business or whatever. But the one thing she knew was she had no interest in programming. She had these friends that were trying to tell her she'd be good at it. And she had zero interest. Let's face it, I was her prototype of what a programmer is. I'm not to disparage myself, but I am not what some 20-year-old woman is aspiring to look like and be. This is My life was not her life. She had friends telling her she should really get into this. Mm -hmm. And at one point, she needed just a science credit, just, just one science credit. And only thing that fit her schedule was a programming class. So she took it, and it was easy for her. Again, it's the mindset. It was easy, and it was fun and she knew that I had a pretty good living and income from this. So she knew the potential. She did the research. And all of a sudden, she switched her major entirely. Now, eventually, she followed a path that some people do. I couldn't do it. She followed a path recognizing that she's good with people. She could do more as managing programs than developing. More power to her. Uh, to me, that's the curse to become management instead of developing. But, but, but she had that exposure that she wouldn't have had otherwise. So these camps give an opportunity for kids to see what it's like and see if there's a fit for them. Now, if they're going to a camp, they at least have an inkling. We, we can't force everybody to do it, although I certainly hope the high schools are at least exposing them to it. Mm -hmm. So these camps, yeah. the kids showing up for it have some inkling that this might be interesting. Or... They have some inkling that, hey, there's a job here. But yeah. I think that here's a job here leads to the alcohol, suicide, and divorce. Going into the field for the money is stressful. But going into it because you discovered that, hey, that was cool. I did that, and I can do more of that, makes a satisfied programmer. 
And these camps are an absolute opportunity for kids to see that possibility that they won't get from a textbook. I, I was almost thinking, too, if the availability of these coding boot camps, right, and getting more people into it who otherwise didn't have a computer science degree or had a degree kind of like me, completely unrelated, if it's now we're getting, I don't know if this is a bad thing, but too much saturation. And you've probably heard of all the tech layoffs that have happened across different companies. I know there was a big news story to start the year about Amazon. Now, granted, the the layoffs that happened at Amazon, I don't know if they're necessarily tech-related, but maybe some of them are, maybe some of them aren't. But it's not just Amazon. It's Meta. It's, uh, I heard, Netflix. Um, I, some of these cryptocurrency companies, too. Um, does it saturate the market too much to have everybody trying to go for this one career path? Or what do you think? That's a pattern. It's definitely a pattern that happens. Um, I don't know that the saturation is bad in general, but it's certainly bad in specific cases. Um, I cannot remember his name now, a, a software engineer who's written some pretty good books. DeMarco, I think, Tom DeMarco, wrote a book called Slack. Fascinating book because it shows how innovation in almost all areas, innovation requires some slack, some capacity to work on things you hadn't thought of, uh, to, to concentrate on more than just efficiency. He uses a beautiful metaphor. Let's take the streets of a city. Let's take an efficiency mindset, which is you use maximal resources, as many as you can. Put a car on every single square inch of that city. You are 100% efficient. How fast does the traffic move? Zero. The city streets have got slack in them. We have more street than we need for any given car at any given moment, but that's how we get places. And he shows examples across the industry of how if you don't have slack, you will not be able to respond when the big opportunity or the big crisis comes along. So having some slack in the industry, I think, is good for everybody. Having too much is an, another matter entirely. Um, but I also would point out that some of those places where the layoffs are happening had a lot of slack and expensive places to live and, mm. and expensive places to hire people. Um, I can't remember when was the last cycle we went through this. Was it 2000s? I think it was post Y2K where, oh, okay, we had all this bubble. ramp up in the dot-com bubble. And you had a lot of concern then of outsourcing to India and wherever too. Mm -hmm. But some companies outsourced to Tennessee. Okay. Where you're not 14 time zones away, you're maybe two. You're not an entirely different language, although Indians in general have much better English than I have Hindi, so I can't fault them for language that much. But there were just so many ways that being in Tennessee was essentially local. And I say Tennessee, Nebraska, wherever. Sure. Someplace where the cost of living 
is significantly smaller. So you can actually, if you're thinking strategic wise business, you can pay people less and they net more because of cost of living differences. Now, I don't know that any of them bluntly said, we're hiring you here because you're going to save us money over these people. But to some degree, that's that's going on. Um, I, I've seen that happen where even before the layoffs were happening, I've known programmers who moved from California to Michigan, got a perfectly good job paying a third less, and because of cost of living, netting a third more. Wow. So that that's some of the adjustment I think we're going to see. Are, are we overloaded? Well, I don't know. When I listen to some of these people who are being some of the, not the people, but the areas where the layoffs are happening, they're not the core at the development. They are ancillary. Okay. Um, Scott Adams, I don't know how many people are aware of this today, but Scott Adams did some business books, not just Dilbert. Now, they were business <laughs> That's humor. what I know him for. <laughs> <laughs> they, they were business humor and, of course, built around the Dilbert brand because he's no dummy, but they were hardcover little business books. And he had a discussion in one where he talked about essentially one-offs. If you are writing code, customers run that code. You are level zero. If you are a manager holding meetings to find out what the code should do, you're essentially level zero. If you are the person who is making sure that the developer has pencils and pens to work with, you're one off. You're not doing the work that the customers deal with. If you are the person cleaning the desk of the person ordering the pencils and so on. And, and it was humorous because all of these are essential functions, but how many of them are the core business and so how many of them in a crunch are disposable? I honestly can go get my own pencils from the, from the supply closet. Mm -hmm. um, he, he put a lot more into that. But there, there is this concept of what you have to have to generate the income and what you have to have to support that and what you have to have to support that. And if you make the cuts in the outer areas, you haven't necessarily hurt the income immediately. It becomes hurting eventually. This kind of reminds me a little bit of, if you're familiar, I don't know the author, but the book is called The Miracle Man Month. Yes, yes. Fred uh, Brooks. Fred Brooks, yeah. I, I remember the one concept from that book is the more people you add to a project, it doesn't necessarily make the project the quality better, but it extends the timeline for each person well, you add to it. The, there, there's two quick caveats to that. Generally, this is means for late projects because okay. when a project is late, the first answer is throw bodies at it. <laughs> and the other is a strong caveat is throwing bodies at it without a plan. Because, okay, let's say I'm working on some code. Mm-hmm. And we throw you at it to try to help me. I now have to stop everything I'm doing and explain to you where I'm at, how I got here. And yeah. now anytime we want to solve a problem, we have to have more conversation. So more people necessarily include some friction in this. 100%. But now let's suppose that the problem I'm working on suddenly needs a payment system. And I know nothing about payment systems. 
and you're a genius on payment systems. Throwing you at this problem just stopped me from having to learn something I didn't know requires you to learn enough about my system to know how the payments are going to be coming in and out, requires me to learn enough about payment systems to talk to your code, but we just done an efficient division of labor. And so efficient division of labor, effective, can help a project. But just, okay, we need multiple programmers on this because the one guy's not getting it done, almost guaranteed to make it later. <laughs> uh, his, his analogy is, okay, we, ha we need a baby, so it's going to take nine months. But we don't have nine months. We need it in one, so let's put nine women on the job. <laughs> Some jobs are not divisible. Mm. Now, if we need an average of a baby a month, nine women, on average, can give us a baby a month. But one woman, one baby, nine months is indivisible. Mm. Yeah. And some problems are like that. And some problems don't have to be like that, but they end up being like that. There's a concept, I don't know if there's an official term for it, I always call it silos. A silo of work area where you've got all the expertise and all the control and every part of that has to go through you. And that may, there may be very good reasons for it, but it also, first of all, makes you a single point of failure. You walk out in front of that semi-truck and get splatted in the road, now your company's in trouble. Oh, yeah. But it also means you've only got one set of eyes on all of this stuff. So you're not, other people aren't learning You've got no expansion of the knowledge within the, within the group. So one effective way to use more people is one that I absolutely positively hate. I will fight it tooth and nail, except I'll be the first one saying, yeah, you should do that. Uh, I, like some programmers, I'm a bit grumpy and antisocial when I'm doing my job. Mm. Close the door, leave me alone. One of the most effective uses of extra people is pair programming. I love pair programming. Pair programming. Yeah. I... I I get absolutely social anxiety in a paraprogramming environment, but I know it works. You know it works. You get, first of all, immediate feedback on your code. Second of all, you get knowledge sharing mm -hmm. because next week you pair with somebody different, so you're learning more parts of the system. I think every organization should be pair programming everybody every day, and I think most programmers are going to fight it tooth and nail, and I would too because it just... It's stressful for me, but I, I also know the most effective coding I have ever done was pair programming with a friend hour after hour for a month straight because there was an important deadline to make. We never, ever, ever had a problem with getting things done. The social anxiety side of that, on the other hand, this was a friend who at that time I had known for a dozen years. Since then, let's see, I've known him for 30 more years. Wow. Really good friend, a guy I trust implicitly with anything. During that pair programming period, at the end of the day, he went north, I went south, and we'd better not run into each other at all until the next day. Because that much time intimately in contact with another person, too much stress. I so. agree. <laughs> uh, no, I 100% agree with that. Um. This is kind of a nice segue then into into your books, because um, was it your was um, 
I Am Carrie. Was that your first book, first novel? It's complicated. <laughs> I wrote the book that eventually became The Last Dance and tried to sell it. Didn't have a lot of luck at the time. I wrote Today I Am Paul, the short story that's the basis of Today I Am Carrie, and it got a Nebula nomination and a Washington Small Press Award and got the attention of lots of agents. And when I got an agent who really was interested, and I'm explaining, this is the book I've already written, but this is kind of the book I think I could write, he said, okay, I am never going to tell you what to write. I will expose you to considerations. You have this book that you've written, and you've got this story that's been translated now into eight languages, been in four years best, won awards. Which one of these do you think is going to be marketable? Okay, now that you've decided what's marketable, you were going to write that book anyway, right? And so I wrote Today I'm Carrie, and he sold that one, and then later sold the other one. So The Last Dance was written first. Today I Am Carrie was published first. Okay, I like that distinction. Uh, And kind of the reason why I say, you know, we were just talking about software development and the tech space, and Today I Am Carrie, the reason why I was saying a kind of nice segue uh, for the audience, um, it's about a AI, kind of. Um, Mm -hmm. Can you explain the story of Today I Am Carrie? Well, it starts with Today I Am Paul, which was a story inspired by the late Mike Resnick that he had challenged me to write shorter. I don't know if I succeeded in writing shorter, but by my standards, it was shorter. He challenged me to write shorter. I was looking for an idea, and I was in the shower one morning because that's where all great thinking is done. Oh, absolutely. And I suddenly had a sort of an idea of an Alzheimer's-related story, and because Mike's uh, mother-in-law had gone through that, so Mike has been on that topic, or had been. And so I kind of was thinking along those lines, and suddenly I had this line coming into my head, today I am Paul. And okay, the story wrote itself after that. Literally 50 minutes of dictation on the drive to work, the story was done. Just from those, today I am Paul? Yep. Wow. Uh, I changed the last three paragraphs on response to some of my readers, and but the story was essentially done an hour after I had those. Well, okay, an hour after I got into my Jeep, after having those. I didn't have the Jeep then. It was still the Mazda. Okay, an hour after I got into my Mazda, after having those lines, the story was done. The story was about a woman having mental memory issues, declining years of Alzheimer's. And an android who takes care of her, this is not anything new, this has been something in science fiction for a long time, and the Japanese are already well along the way of building robots like this. Really? But the android, in this case, had two special abilities. It could pretend to be people, physically emulate them, and it could understand what people were feeling. And so that became this android's two superpowers, is it understands you and it can try to be you. And this became a way of therapy for this woman in late stages of her life. And after she passed away, because I'm sorry, still today we know how all Alzheimer's stories eventually end. After she passed away, 
I'm like, okay, they want a novel out of this. And I had two choices. I could do what was done with Flowers for Algernon. I don't know if you're familiar with yes, it. Yes, I've read that. Yeah. There, there's a short story. I think it's actually a novelette. And there's a book. And that book or that story, spoiler for readers, I won't spoil the whole thing other than say, if you haven't read it yet, go do it. But it ends in a way that you cannot tell any more story after. And you really cannot tell any story before. You can only tell the story between that beginning and that ending. So when he was tasked to turn it into a novel, he had to stretch out the story. And forgive me for those who love the novel, it's not as good. It's too stretched. It's too bloated. It does not have the impact for me that the novelette has. So when I was tasked to turn Today I'm Paul into a story, I didn't want to do that. So my choices were tell the story before, can't do that, or tell the story after. So I put the android with the family for the next 80 years, essentially as a perfect neutral observer of the family condition. It does not judge, it just understands. And it understands deeply what you're going through and within the limits of privacy, it's a medical device, HIPAA, within the limits of privacy, it tries to help. And so it is all about a human family's life viewed through this outside set of eyes that is trying to essentially grow up to be, not to be a human. This isn't a Pinocchio. This isn't data from Star Trek where he wants to be a human. Mm -hmm. It it always emphasizes, I am not a he, I am not a she, I am an it, I am a machine. Mm. It never has these delusions that it could be a human. And in the process, sort of becomes extremely human from the point of view of readers. Because it's not judging anyone, but it's understanding and helping. And I, I'm imagining it as, like it, like visually a C-3PO type figure, like it looks, it's got the body of a human. Is that kind of accurate? Uh, one of my weaknesses as a writer is I'm not visual. <laughs> it's sort of vaguely human-like and can change its shape. To, to It never can perfectly imitate you, but it, it can look a lot like you, more than enough to, to satisfy a patient with memory and perception issues. But yeah, I always saw it kind of... Um, 3PO like it has extensions and it has the automatic ability to change colors and shades of things and stuff. Um, the artist who did the cover did this really cool yeah, humanoid look, nice. look yeah. that I'm like, I never thought of that, but I like it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it that what the cover is really cool. Um, so this, so it carry. It kind of is a very just hearing kind of you describe describe it. It's very caring, benevolent. I don't know if maybe that's the right word, but it, it it's a sharp contrast from something that's competitive, combative. Kind of because I picture something like iRobot, where hey, those robots were great, and then all of a sudden they turn on people and they're trying to you know, destroy humanity. So, so the, is there 
that contrast between Carrie and something like that. Okay, to be fair, the robots thought they were saving humanity. Oh, and I wrote... It, it, it was the logic <laughs> built into them by the three laws. And it, I don't know, are you talking movie or story? I'm more so the, the Will Smith movie. Okay. Yeah. I know people who hate it. I actually thought it got the concepts right. It got the characters wrong. But, but it had to be for Hollywood. You're going to have some attractive woman as a scientist because this is Hollywood deal with it. Of course. Um, the It's not directly based on any Asimov story, but it's definitely based on Asimov concepts of if you have a super intelligent computer that is supposed to, as rule number one, do not, through action or inaction, let harm come to a human, it's going to look at you and say, you cannot have that greasy sausage for breakfast because it's going to clog your arteries and kill you. So I'm taking away That's the greasy point. sausage. The, the robots, the AI in there, if you pay very close attention to the dialogue, they're reiterating this theme that happens in Asimov's stories across the series, that, that a truly aware machine that is not allowing any harm to you cannot allow any freedom to you because you will make bad choices. And you need an even more advanced intelligence to realize that taking your freedom away from you is a fundamental harm. It's not a physiological harm, but it's a psychological harm. Mm. So there, there is that in defense of the robots and iRobot. They were still wrong, but they had their moral justification. Carrie has some of that, because I grew up on Asimov stories. When I, when I wrote the story and the book, I had three fundamental things to avoid. I couldn't just repeat Asimov. I could not just repeat uh, data from Star Trek. And I could not just repeat Flowers for Algernon. That those were three incredibly strong influences on me. And it is always true that our influences come forth in our writing. But I had to consciously say, I'm not telling that story. It's already been told really well. I don't need to tell that story. So there's definitely an Asimov influence in there in that Carrie must help, mm -hmm. but not to the degree that the runaway robots and Asimov would, and especially because it's constrained on HIPAA laws. I mean, it's actually a plot point in the book. I don't remember if I say HIPAA in particular, but... Medical devices cannot violate your consent, your privacy. And so Carrie's ability to help is first and fundamentally constrained by that. Um, there's a scene, probably more than one, I'm just remembering one, scenes in there where if Carrie only told you what your wife was going through, you and she could reconcile. But mm -hmm. it, it, it draws a distinction. If you tell him that you're dealing with this and this and this stress, it's just a conversation between friends. It can share that. But if it intuits it through its superpower, its diagnostic ability, that you are under great stress because of your finances, it can't tell anyone mm. unless you grant the permission because it has diagnosed wow. this condition. Wow. So this lets me keep Carrie under control that it's not going to take over the world and, and try to make everybody behave properly. But wow. there's the influence there that, okay. Asimov, when he formed his three laws, first of all, was forming them for a reason that 
the classic runaway robot, the Frankenstein complex, he felt like that was bad engineering. People design safety guards into machines. Now, today, safety guards are thousands of percent better than they were in the early 20th century when he was proposing this, that the lockouts on machines and everything, there's so many safety guards built in. Back in the 20s and 30s, safety guards weren't as sophisticated, but they did build them in. So the idea that we're going to build these machines without constraints for safety irritated him, absolutely irritated him. So he created the three laws so that there were ways to constrain these things and immediately said, okay, now we've got story potential. What happens when this law conflicts with this law? What happens when this law is going to have this consequence that we don't want, but we can't talk the robot out of it? All sorts of story potential in three tiny little laws. So there was, in the three laws, there was all sorts of potential that Asimov explored and explored and explored, and I don't need to explore that. It's been done. But the concept of the machine is there to help, the machine is not there to hurt, and the machine has to take care of itself. I also think he got that one wrong, that, sorry, we want the machine to protect you, so we want all the safety guards. Second law in Asimov was it has to do what you tell it to as long as it won't hurt anybody. And third is it has to protect itself. Uh-uh, uh-uh. Today, that $14 million machine is going to be designed to protect itself first and follow your instructions second because you're not <laughs> going to let the $14 million machine blow itself to bits. It's expensive explosion. It's, <laughs> yeah. But the idea that, that it has to do what you tell it to do never really came in in my book. But I my book, okay, conveniently arranged because I was the writer. The family believed that Carrie was functionally a person. So the family would never consider giving Carrie orders. In a different environment with different family and so on, I don't really know if Carrie would automatically follow orders or not. That'd be something to explore. There, mm -hmm. are, there are new Carrie stories happening in small anthology outlets. Um, there is, in Bain.com, there was a uh, Today I Remember, which was not directly a Carrie story. It was Luke the Acrobat from Today I'm Carrie is sort of his backstory. Uh, there is another one which is, now I forget his name, but the uh, Belizean software technician who was in Today I'm Carrie gets called back to Belize to help deal with an Android incursion there. Um, and then my favorite one is coming up this year in an anthology, I forget the name now, edited by Robert Silverberg, the, the Grandmaster, and Brian Thomas Schmidt, who is a friend who has edited numerous anthologies. They wanted a collection of robot stories through history. And so they were going back and finding all of these classic robot stories, including Moxon's Master, which was in the very first science fiction anthology I ever read by Ambrose Bierce. They were getting all of these historical things of, of Bierce and Binet and Bradbury, getting all of these, and they said, but we want a couple of original stories. And they asked for one for me. And this is like... Oh, that's cool. I mean, literally, I grew up reading Moxon's Master and the rest of that anthology, and Heinlein and Bradbury and all were in there. And now... 
I'm appearing in an anthology with Moxon's Master and a Bradbury story and a Benet story, though not neither one are the ones that I grew up on, but and I'm appearing in that <clears throat> because they asked for a Carey story and I had to find, because I mean, it's an 80-year history in a 200-page book. There's lots of gaps in there. So I looked through Carey's history and found a story and said, I can do this one and I want to. This is an important story. So this year I appear next to Bradbury and Heinlein, well not Heinlein, Bradbury and Benet and Bierce and Silverberg and many others. I think there's like two, maybe three original stories in the collection. The rest are all robot stories through history. Wow, that's really cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a hell of an accomplishment. Um, yeah, that's, uh, congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, this kind of leads me into now, and one thing before moving on, uh, every time I hear Carrie now, it's like, okay, I'm thinking about your book, but I also get, it wasn't there a Stephen King novel? Carrie. Carrie. C-A-R-R-I-E, about the why. girl developing psychic powers as she delves into adolescence and the people who have all abused her and, and tortured her her whole life mm. and how eventually she explodes and kills them all. Sorry, spoilers for a 50-year-old book. <laughs> I don't know. Just hearing Carrie so often, I don't know why that, that book just popped in my head. Um, I think that was a movie too, right? It so, was a movie. Yeah. Uh, actually, I think the movie may have made King a bigger name than the book ever did because, of mm. course, it, let's face it. If a book sells 100,000 copies, that is huge. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. If a movie sells 100,000 tickets, it's a disaster. <laughs> That's not making a million dollars. Today, that is an absolute disaster. Love to read, love to write, but let's be real. Movies have an audience that is 100 times bigger. Mm. So Carrie got him serious attention. He already had, from the writing side, serious attention. His early deals on Carrie were just Numbers nobody had heard of back then, practically, for a new novel. Mm -hmm. But the movie was, I mean, especially John Travolta as the the male antagonist. So that was when Travolta was in his first hot stage. I think he's on his fourth hot stage now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this is like Saturday Night Fever time. That was the, yeah. I don't know if it was before or after before. Fever, but it was right in that yeah. time period. He had been big on... Uh, Welcome Back, Cotter, which had gotten him the attention that was getting him movie parts. So so he had a natural built-in audience, even though he was a pretty secondary character in the story overall. The main character was Carrie herself, and then her mother, and the girls who tormented her, and, and he was the guy dating one of the girls who tormented her. Who and She talked him into taking Carrie to the prom as a prank. Mm. So it's like, he was there. But it wasn't primarily him, but but he was a draw. Uh, he was a big name. Who was it, Carrie? It was a Sissy Spacek. Oh, I'm who, familiar. Who also yeah. was, she was an emerging star at the time. Now she's a very accomplished actress with lots and lots of, of good credentials and everything. But then she was kind of the emerging thing. So you had some names that now are huge. Then were they were a draw. I don't know how yeah. huge they were. No, I'm Sissy Spacek, I believe, was in one of my favorite movies, JFK. I think she played um, 
uh, the DA's wife, I believe, uh, Kevin Costner's wife in that movie. Um, yeah, that's, again, like randomly Stephen King's novel just pops in my head. Um, does this book, how does this book lead into the blue collar space novels that you've been Completely doing? separate. Yeah. <laughs> Completely, utterly separate. Um, and it's, it's actually, it's a gaping hole. Spoiler, if anybody wants to give me grief, it's a gaping hole in blue-collar space that I practically never touch on anything androids or even AI. Because that's about like Mars-ish? It's, I, I, I blue-collar space is the concept of, of, we don't just do science up there, we have to do hard work up there. <laughs> um, I, I call it sort of Neo-Apollo, it's near future, near space, hard science fiction. Mars being one of the settings, by no means the only one. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's imagine the Apollo program pushed forward into, okay, now we're living and working on Mars and somewhat in the rest of the solar system and so on. And there's no robots. There's no robots anywhere. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's shocking how blatant the absence of robots is. I need to fix this at some point. Uh, I have one scene that ended up on the cutting room floor that was full of material handling equipment, which is essentially robots, just doesn't look like a 3PO walking around. Yeah. Uh, I worked in material handling for a lot of years writing control software. So so I, I kind of put that to use. And it's it's still in the background a lot of a lot of my stories because getting stuff from here to there is a complicated problem that has to be solved in any society, oh, absolutely. including societies out in space. So kind of, if it becomes relevant to the story, that material handling knowledge is all back in the background. Okay. But no, there's, there's no direct connection. It's just, I've been working on what became Blue Collar Space essentially since the early, well, probably middle 90s. It started as a role-playing game setting mm -hmm. that never got played once because my players weren't interested but i kept the maps i kept the notes mm -hmm. it was i love that era i love the apollo era and and what comes next of living and working and dying and thriving in space mm -hmm. and so i wanted to build a setting for that and that setting has become blue collar space um partly because of laziness <laughs> if if an author is the slightest bit lazy and the slightest bit smart, once you build a setting, you reuse it if you can, if there are more stories there, mm -hmm. that you don't want to go through all the trouble of building a setting mm. and then throw it away. Or at least I don't because I'm lazy. But it also then makes building the next story easier because I've got all this accumulated world. And the world just keeps growing and growing in every story. Uh, surprising me sometimes with the stuff that's going in there, but also kind of surprising me that no robots have crept yet. Well, you, this seems like you were ahead of the time then. If if this kind of started back in the 90s, what I'm hearing now with SpaceX, SpaceX Elon Musk talking about now, hey, we're going to send a flight there. We want to have a colony there. You were kind of ahead of your time then with this, or were there talks about this back then too? There were plenty of talks. Uh, I don't know how much they were in the popular imagination. But honestly, as much as I love my work, 
I'm going where Heinlein has been. I'm going where Bova has been. I'm going where all sorts of Clark has been. I'm going in places that lots of others have done because there's plenty of stories still there. I don't have to tell their stories, but the concept. Um, I owe so much to actually two of relatively more recent authors. I mean, I mentioned Heinlein and Clark. They're great. They're pretty far back there. Uh, ben Bova crosses that he was he was big in that era and was editor for analog for a lot of years um but he was passed away two or three years ago so he was still writing this into the period where i'm a writer he wrote a series of books set on different planets and different parts of the solar system that formed a connected universe so that was a huge influence on me and another was alan Steele, who did very similar stuff with his book the only one I remember the title of right now is Clark County Space, which is a collection of his stories. But both of them were approaching space exploration as a real nitty-gritty human endeavor that people live and die in. Mm -hmm. And they were strong influences on me that I can tell those stories to. You want to say it's not original because they did their first? Well, nothing's original. Larry Niven likes to say, Science fiction is in a conversation with itself that new writers are responding to what came before, not mm -hmm. ripping it off, responding it to it. Uh, there are people who come up to Niven and say, aren't you angry with Halo? They stole your ring world. <laughs> and he's like, they didn't stole it, steal it. They used the idea to tell other stories. And wow. it's not my ring world. It's different in size. And, and, the, and I took my idea from Dyson's Dyson Sphere. So, no, I'm not angry at them. Do I wish they had bought my story and made it into one of these million-dollar properties for games and movies? Sure. But I'm not angry because I can tell you my influences that I built on. We respond to our influences and find our own stories within it. If somebody doesn't want to read my stuff because they've already read Heinlein and Clark, I love Heinlein and Clark. Great for them. Go read it. But if you want more, Heinlein and Clark aren't around to do it anymore. Shout out to Halo. That was like the game when we were kids. Wow. I, I didn't even realize that that, yeah, the ring was based off of you said uh, Niven? Larry Niven. Larry Niven. Wow. I don't know if it was based on, they might have come up with it independently, but it's going to be hard considering Ringworld came out early 70s mm -hmm. uh, and, and has been in the science fiction community, has been kind of a known thing for a lot of time. But that doesn't mean they read it. So they could have completely invented it themselves. Mm -hmm. um, a big difference, and I'm not a Halo person, but as I understand they're much smaller in scope. The Ringworld is literally one astronomical unit in radius, essentially wow. one Earth orbit in radius. Mm -hmm. And so if you do the math, it turns out to be as much matter as you would get if you took an entire solar system apart and built a ring out of it mm -hmm. and then spun it fast enough to generate one gravity of centrifugal force. Centripetal, wow. actually. A physicist will jump on me because it's centripetal, <laughs> not centrifugal. They're two different forces, but, but the average person is going to say centrifugal. So there's a huge difference there. The storyline is, there, there's, there, I mean, one is a space marine story and one is a strange new world story. They are completely different stories. Um, 
Niven has actually been accused and has kind of said, you might be right, of he took his story from the Wizard of Oz. Mm. And people have gone and, and have mapped beat for beat how the first Ringworld book is essentially the Wizard of Oz storyline. And he's like, no, I had none of that in mind. And he said, I've been watching Wizard of Oz since it came out. He's that old. And it's one of my absolute favorite stories. And um, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, have you heard? This is so funny, bringing Wizard of Oz up. Uh, have you heard the, the Pink Floyd theory? And I've watched. So I, there's a YouTube video where you can watch it. They overlay uh, Dark Side of the Moon onto Wizard of Oz. It's pretty uncanny. The like similarities. <laughs> my my cynical theory is also I kind of like to think also a profound theory. Yes, I have that much hubris. I'm claiming myself profound. I have always felt that intelligence is ninety plus percent pattern recognition. We are made to find patterns even when they're not there. Um, and as I mean. We see pictures in the sky. Nobody drew any pictures in the sky. And as my sister-in-law said when we went, to, we were school kids together, went to the um, planetarium, and she asked the uh, director, why is it that I can see the Big Dipper all sorts of places in the sky? And he said, that's because you're looking for it. <laughs> and so you're looking for the pattern. My cynical theory on a lot of patterns that people discover is it's because we're looking for patterns. We are, we are hard-coded to look, look for patterns. And that doesn't make them right or wrong. It can make them useful. A pattern that you see recur becomes a way to analyze and think about a problem. <coughs> there is, um, if you're familiar with the hero's journey, or sometimes hero with a thousand oh, faces, yeah, I think which so. is Joseph Campbell's theory of a sort of a monomyth, a standard oh. story structure okay. that crosses across story after story after story through history. Um, and, and it became popularized because George Lucas used it for a film called Star Wars back when that was the only Star Wars and these other things didn't count. <laughs> he claimed to have used the hero's journey as his structure for Star Wars. He also admitted that he used a Kurosawa Akira, I can't get his name. The the Japanese filmmaker's uh, castle story that essentially, if you go that one, that one is almost beat for beat mm. because Lucas admits that was his influence. Wow. But he said he used the hero's journey. And then there's a brilliant analyst out there, anonymous, pseudonymous. He calls himself film critic Hulk. I, yeah, I'm familiar. And he does yeah. all caps on everything. Yep. He did an yep. analysis of the hero's journey and said, Part of why people are seeing it everywhere is because they're looking for it. And I think he makes a pretty strong point there. So how many patterns are real and how many are because we want to see patterns is really hard for me to judge. Um, have you ever seen Film Crit Hulk's writing on, oh, now it escapes me, the David, who's that director? David, not David Lynch. Yeah, oh, wait, Lynch, yeah, um, Mulholland Drive. It was a movie that came out in, like, 2001. His breakdown of that is one of the most brilliant things I've ever read. Because, have you ever seen that movie? Have not. 
I did it, read Film Critics Hulk's piece, but that was like seven or eight years ago. Yeah. <laughs> it, the way he broke it down, because it's such a confusing movie, and he comes right out and just lays out his thoughts, lays out like what's going on with all these weird random characters, these random scenes that you see. It, absolutely brilliant. I don't, God, I haven't read his stuff in a long time. Wow. He, he disappeared for a long time, um, trying to turn it into a book, trying to, trying to find different ways to monetize it. And it this, the links, many of them have faded now. Okay. Um, and he now has a Patreon site because that's a way to monetize it. Okay, people come for the free stuff and then they want more. So, and yeah. so, but but yeah, I went for a while. I use Film Critic Hulk in a couple of examples in my Making Story Models book. Oh, that's and cool. And every year I have to sort of check the links and say, is that page still there? <laughs> because he has a piece that tears apart three act structure and a uh, piece that tears apart uh, Hero's Journey, he's at his best when he's showing you where groupthink isn't making art. Groupthink mm. is making Hollywood comfortable with, oh, we know what we're getting. I, that maybe even... Do you think that applies to... Gosh, I, I know this isn't the case, but it seems like every blockbuster I see is a superhero movie. Now, granted, I mean, we just had Avatar came out. That's not a superhero movie, but it's, it's a sequel. It's in the zone. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, I, do you think that's kind of why we see, I don't want to, maybe cookie cutter, like kind of the same movie, like again and again, this group I, think? I, I want to be fair to all sides here. And one of the answers is absolutely yes. Hollywood is a business. They invest money hundreds of millions of dollars oh, yeah. into these things, they want to hedge those investments. So that is definitely part of it. <clears throat> Related to that is audiences in general have a strong preference for what we call the same thing but different. That it's comfortable so they know what they're getting and it's surprising so they talk about it. And so there's some of that going on but there's also, <clears throat> I'm, I'm jumping into my talk coming up later today. <laughs> Dave Wolverton taught about what he called wonder. He felt like calling science fiction and fantasy separate genres was missing the point. They're both wonder. He defined genres in terms of the primary emotion that's involved. So mystery is curiosity. Horror is fear. Westerns are justice, which is a whole other discussion we can Interesting. have. Interesting. Yeah. I think it's Westerns are justice and individuality. But but he said science fiction and fantasy are about wonder. And if you put them together as one genre, as opposed to splitting them up, they tend to be the number one genre in literature, back and forth with romance. But romance crosses genres. So a lot of romance is also fantasy or science fiction. Huh. So his argument was that wonder is actually the top genre in literature and even more so in movies because they're not making these movies by accident. They're making these movies because there are butts in every seat. 100%. And if yeah. you go and look at the top 20 films of any given year in terms of viewers, in terms of gross, 
science fiction, fantasy, superheroes, horror, they're like 17 or 18 out of 20. <laughs> now, the dramatists who, who think that their serious, mature adult stories deserve more attention make those stories great, wonderful. There's an audience for them. But the plain fact is that the mass audience likes wonder. They mm. like surprise. They like spectacle. Yeah. And so Hollywood's in the business of getting those butts in the seats. What was this guy's name again? Dave Wolverton, also Dave. known as David Farland. He was the author of the Rune Lord series, among many, many other things, and also a hugely influential teacher for a generation of writers. Mm -hmm. My book, that I'm writing, my class that I'm teaching today would not have existed if Dave hadn't inspired me. Wow. No, I'm going to, that is a very fast, I never thought about genres like that. So what, he described it as the feelings you get, wonder. Yeah, the uh, driving emotions and motivations. Wow. And so romance, obviously, it's built into the name. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and thrillers are about tension. <laughs> and science fiction and fantasy are wonder. The the westerns are about justice is a little surprising to a lot of people. But yeah. you think about it, it is a big part of it. It's how are you on that frontier going to make your claim and defend it against hostile forces? Mm. And over time, I mean, historically, this is the truth. Over time, you go from individuals enforcing their land to, okay, now we have a marshal in the area, but that area is huge. Pretty soon, okay, we have a local sheriff and we have deputies. You are evolving from the individual justice to the societal justice. But a lot of good Western stories about the conflicts between those two, that wow. the the actual official justice isn't up to the task or is corrupt themselves and so on. And ironically, this reiterates a theme from my great books class back in freshman year of college. If you go all the way back to the Greeks, there is this progression in their fiction from you kill me, my family now must kill you, and your family must kill me too. The, the basic, the feud approach mm -hmm. and the individual justice yeah. and vengeance approach to, okay, now we have the Furies. If you commit a wrong, the Furies are going to show up and tear you apart. Mm. Eventually getting into the society making these decisions and so on. That, that this is in essence a history of civilization. We go from you must protect your your place, your people, your own, and nobody else will do it for you. So you've got to be the most tough and the most vicious, and by today's standards, probably a horrible person. But it was the only protection you had evolving to, okay, now we have an actual culture built around justice and defense. And now you get in the stories of what happens when that breaks down. What happens when the people responsible for justice are the criminals themselves and so on. So this has been a, and we talk about cycles, this has been a classic cycle both in cultures and in literature about cultures. The mm -hmm. Westerns became about first protect this piece of land and the people living here and eventually about, okay, now we're protecting this structure we built so that we don't have the Hatfields and the McCoys feuding and killing each other for three generations. It seems like some of these elements are in your book, The Last Campaign, a little bit. The Last Campaign is extremely frontier-influenced. Yeah. Um, that, that I needed to have this setting 
for these mysteries and the setting had to have these elements. Um, so it's the story of spoiler for my second book, first written the last dance, the two protagonists end up as exiles on Mars that they're not welcome in space anywhere else. And so to make a living for themselves because they're good at investigating, because if you're not detail oriented in space, you die. And so they're good investigators and they reach a point where I'm going to get her name wrong because I'm going to say it the way an English speaker would say it. Rosalia. I'm told that in Brazilian Portuguese, that'd be something like Hazalia, but I can't help it. To me, she's Rosie. Rosie becomes the chief of police for the biggest city on Mars, which has never had a police force before. And so she's dealing with some of these issues of the culture change of we can't we can't rely on the cavalry, i.e. the the military, to come in and solve all our problems. We need to have security, and it needs to be official, not corporate, because we need to have it controlled by the people if the people are going to trust it. So she's dealing with a lot of these issues, and that yes, it is a a story structure straight from so many westerns. I couldn't even begin to name them right now, because it's again a recurring cycle. Mm-hmm. Would would Martin Shoemaker ever go into space? I am probably past the age where I could get away with it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if, if I were young and healthy, absolutely. Uh, are you familiar with Heinlein's The Man Who Sold the Moon in Requiem? No. Okay, go read them. Yeah. I don't want to spoil anything at all, but your question you have asked ties directly into those. Read The Man Who Sold the Moon... And then immediately after, read Requiem. That's me. Except I don't have his millions and millions and millions of dollars, which, which today would be billions and billions because that was back in the 40s. But, but that is sort of my approach to it of if I had the youth and the health and the absolute stubborn determination that he had because I'm not that, that – I'm stubborn. I'm lazy. But, but had I his – resources and his drive that would be me um i have a friend author mona lisa foster who anytime the subject of space travel comes up says remember 97 percent of what's out there will kill you if you let it she loves space stories she has no interest in actually going Mm. i gotta figure if i gotta die that's the way to do it (laughs) so if if Elon has an open seat on his flight. You're, if you were younger, you'd take it. Maybe not so much. If, if I were younger and had no family connections. Yeah. <laughs> that's the real tough one is, I'm sorry, I fully expect those are one-way trips. Mm. That the time to get there, you're not going to want to invest that for a quick jaunt. I think that eventually it's going to be one-way trips that you are moving to this new location, which would be fine with yeah. me. I don't know that I also, I don't know if I have enough valuable skills that would be worth going or not. This is an interesting thing that has come up in science fiction back and forth. Are you working remotely or in office right now? Uh, remote. I'm remote. <laughs> yeah. Do programmers have to be on site? 
So a lot of the programming for future exploration can be done by people sitting here on Earth. Mm. Some of it can't. Uh, in the 70s, I remember reading an article in Scientific American about, uh, I think it was a Voyager probe, one of NASA's probes, where while it was out in space, whether it was a manufacturing defect or a cosmic ray or what, a bit failed in a chip. <laughs> and they went through the entire process by which these people, millions of, year, of miles away, were able to remotely diagnose that problem. Wow. And write new code so that the code would run and skip that bit in the processing. Wow. And they didn't go out to space to do it. Yeah. So that's one story. That's why we don't have to go. <laughs> Another is from my own work. I was working in a color vision project. We were doing camera work trying to, trying to understand the colors of things that manufacturers wanted to get consistent. And... There was a problem going on at a customer that I could not make any sense out of at all. Never make any sense. Just completely impossible for this to happen. First, it was my bug. Mature programmers always admit that it's probably their bug to begin with. It was my bug. The eventual solution was if I ever got a pixel in the scan area that was completely black, my calibration routine would turn it into a negative number. And therefore, it would be a, a, a negative light, and all sorts of math would blow up. The camera we were using had never seen a value lower than 12. You're not going to get perfect zero. The, the, the ambient noise in the chip was 12. Mm -hmm. I couldn't solve it, could not solve it, could not solve it. Didn't know that was the problem. Until finally, out of frustration, they sent me to the site. And I'm sitting here trying to diagnose what's going on. And a co-worker behind me looked at the screen and said, is anything to do with those black pixels in the middle of the image? I said, what black pixels? And it was a frozen image, and he pointed out, those are black. Those are, where did those come from? And we took another image, and there were no black pixels. Wow. And then later on, there were completely black pixels, just a, just a couple, three of them. Yeah. And we found eventually a correlation. Anytime that guy two doors down turned on the arc welder, we got completely black pixels. I couldn't have diagnosed that remotely. Okay, today with modern web-connected stuff, I could have. But in 1986 or 7, there's no way I could have solved that anywhere but on site. Mm. Some problems must be solved on site. Much as I, as a programmer, want to hide in my, my safe living room and do all my work there, some things you have to see to fix. Mm -hmm. So that would be my, my valid reason for being there is you can't do it all remote. Mm -hmm. But I also know what sort of code I do and the sort of code I'm doing these days can be done remote. <laughs> um, is it true you got to meet Buzz Aldrin? The whole uh, last dance comes from that. Yeah. <laughs> There's a contest, and it's going on right now, ends February 1st. It's an annual contest called the Jim Bain Memorial Award. Mm -hmm. Actually, Jim Bain 
Memorial Short Story Award, I think. I never get the name right. It's the Bain Memorial. The purpose of that is to have stories that are what I write, essentially. The near future, near space, hard science fiction. Because Jim Bain and all of his people who follow him at Bain are big into real science and science fiction that's realistic. That's not their main thing they publish because the market for fantasy and military science fiction and so on is much bigger. But they love that. And they love the fact that if you go back and watch old NASA interviews with the scientists doing the work then that put us on the moon, their bookshelves are full of Asimov, Heinlein, Clark, and a million other classic science fiction people. That those were the inspirations that put us on the moon. Mm. Bain, specifically with this contest, wants to keep inspiring astronauts and rocket scientists and engineers to get us off this rock. Wow. So, sort of stuff I absolutely love. Perfect contest for me. I've never won it yet. I and and I don't know if I'm even technically I mean I'm probably technically eligible still, but I'm a published Bain author in several places, so I feel like I maybe I shouldn't be in competing in this anymore. Oh, like a conflict of interest yep. kind of <laughs> But one year I came in second. The guy who won, Rich Johnson, who I've I've lost track. I think I owe him two kegs of beer now. Rich Johnson won, but he is over in I want to say New Zealand, say New Zealand. I think it's oh, New wow. Zealand. But if it's if it's not New Zealand, it's Australia. But I think he's in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. The prize was you go get to go to the International Space Development Conference, the industry's conference for people who actually do this stuff. Wow. And get an award at a ceremony and a lunch. But they couldn't fly Rich to Washington. Rich couldn't fly to Washington. So Rich asked if I could appear in his place and read his speech. And it took me about a microsecond to say yes. <laughs> so I appeared in his place to read his speech. So that's why I owe him a glass of beer. <laughs> and I am there at the luncheon. Uh, uh, Stan Schmidt, the former editor for Analog, is there to get an award also. I didn't get to have lunch with him. We later had dinner with him, so it was okay. But I'm there with Bill Ledbetter, the administrator of the contest, and Tony Daniel from Bain, who is Bain's, one of Bain's judges for the contest, eventually the editor for Today I Am Carrie. And we're at these tables with the people who actually do this stuff. Mm-hmm. They're not theorizing and telling stories. They are putting hardware together, and they're having absolutely vigorous debates because they all have an interest in doing it their way. So these debates are going back and forth, not hostile, but but strident. This is why this is better and this is better. Yeah. And there's this woman there. I think she may have been SpaceX. I don't remember where she was from now. She may have been SpaceX, but I don't know if they were around then. Regardless of where she was from, she was a place like that. Mm-hmm. And she had her very strong opinions on a Mars mission. Mm. And she's arguing with an older gentleman at the table with his strong opinions of Mars mission. I'm kind of noticing she's standing her ground, but she's deferential, which was odd. Okay. And at one point, I bend over because I'm in my suit and tie back before I did ties as a regular basis. Okay. So this is a rare thing. Your penguin tie? Or? No, this is, this is just a plain <laughs> ordinary tie. And I bend over with a fork, pick up some salad, and happen to glance to my left. And the older gentleman's name tag says Buzz. 
And I can tell you to this day what's going through my head is don't drop that fork. Do not drop that fork. Whatever you do, do not drop that fork. <laughs> and now I understand why she's deferential. And, and I successfully put salad in my mouth without dropping my fork, and I get through lunch. And then I get up to read Rich's speech. And I'm going to mangle the numbers, but, but, but they were wrong anyway. He said, it's blah, blah, blah years from, from Kitty Hawk. And now it's that many, it, 196, the Apollo was that many years from Kitty Hawk. And now it's that many years from Apollo 11. Why don't I have a space plane to get to Washington? And after the talk, Buzz asks me, was that your speech? And I said, no, I was reading it for this guy. He said, well, the math was wrong. It was not that many years from Apollo 11 yet. That many years from Apollo 11 would be this date in the 2020s range. And wouldn't it be great to celebrate that anniversary on Mars? Wow. So that was my entire conversation with Buzz Aldrin as <laughs> he corrected Rich Johnson's math. But, but, okay, now I've just had dinner with Buzz and a conversation with Buzz. So now I owe Rich three beers. <laughs> And then it's a conference. They are having presentations. I go and see that there's a Mars track. I write stories on Mars. And it's a Mars track where Buzz is one of the speakers with a presentation oh, coming cool. up. So, and I'm, I'm a writer. This is all research. I'm taking all sorts of notes. So I want to go and I sit in and I hear Buzz's talk about the Mars cycler approach, a way of getting to Mars and back strictly on orbital mechanics, almost no fuel use at all. You just have to be willing to ride out a total, I think it's 26 or 27 months for a complete round trip. Wow. But, but it's an orbit. It's not a thrust at that point. And I can tell you today, I took exactly one note in that presentation. Something aboard a Mars cycler. <laughs> so I will rich a beer now because I got to see Buzz. And then a few months later, I'm and of course, in the shower again, I'm like, I need to do something with that Mars cycler story. And I'm remembering Buzz's talk. And I remember at one point, and I'm thinking, tossing ideas around. At one point, he called it an express. Now, we often think express means fast. But of course, if you travel through cities, the express is the highway route with no stops. Because it's for people who just want to get to the other side of town, yeah. not somewhere in between. And so that was the metaphor by which... The cycler was an express. You're going to Mars, you're coming back. You're going to Mars, you're coming back. No stopping. You are, you're going to swing by Mars, and people have time to rendezvous with you. But you're, just, you're on the express route. I'm tossing this idea around, and at some point, instead of calling it the Mars cycler or the Aldrin cycler, somehow Aldrin Express came out of my mouth. Immediately followed by murder on the Aldrin Express, Immediately followed by, oh, I'm telling a murder mystery. I need a detective. And, I, and it's cliche, but I'm going to use the, the captain. And I start thinking about what sort of captain volunteers for this express train to nowhere. So I start building his personality. He's kind of a curmudgeon and a crank. So why, is some, why did the reader want to deal with him? So I need him to have a, a personable, likable aide, essentially the Dr. Watson to the Sherlock Holmes. Mm. And so I come up with Anson Carver, and essentially all of Murder on the Aldrin Express started to take form there. It took me about six weeks to dictate it. It was my first dictated story. It took me about six weeks. 
And it was hard because it was a learning experience. But at the end of the six weeks, I sent it off to Analog because that had been the market I've been writing for all along. It was only my second submission to them. It was insanely long. No market likes to publish long stories by new authors, is what people tell me. But they bought it almost immediately. And it then proceeded to get published in Analog. So it's like, okay, so now I owe Rich a lot of beer. And then I am at a convention, FenCon, down in Dallas, where I've got a bunch of friends there. It's my quote-unquote home convention. Mm-hmm. It's in Dallas. But, but they treat me like I'm home. So <laughs> I was down at FenCon, and I was between panels, and I was sitting down at the lunchroom getting some food. And I opened up my phone and checked my email, and there's an email from Gardner Dozois, who sadly passed away a few years back. But he edited every year a year's best science fiction anthology that was about three inches thick, was the best science fiction of the year, plus also a, a uh, recommended section in the back for stories he looked at and thought were really good, but they didn't make it. And he says, I- I'm considering Murder on the Aldrin Express for a year's best science fiction 31. So I, I, I'm going to hold on to it. I'll let you know. It's like, okay, I think now I owe Rich a lot of beer. <laughs> and then the gardener turns around and buys it for years best. And Alan Castor, who does a lot of audio books of science fiction, buys it for his years best. And then I start selling more stories in that universe. And eventually I've got a novel from that because I started saying, okay, I had two Carver name stories for me, it's always Carver and Ames because it's Carver's voice was telling the story, not Nick Ames. Mm. And I've, so I've got two Carver and Ames stories, and I see a third one, and I'm ready to do the third one, and I start to write it, and it's not working because the story, it was supposed to be, okay, the first one was the murder. The next one was the story, of, but with flashbacks. I'm, I'm an addict for flashbacks and frame stories. <laughs> Then was the story of Carver's wedding, but the whole thing was a flashback to Nick's wedding and how it went horribly, awfully wrong and, and was a disaster for his life and part of what made him the recluse out in space that he became. And I start telling the third story, which is supposed to be the big mutiny story, a big climactic confrontation over mutiny. And as I start telling it, I start recognizing that a, a courtroom battle is going to have lots of flashback to events that happened. And as I'm starting to write this chapter of a book, I realize that chapter two is going to be a flashback to something much earlier in Ames's career when he was first the captain of this ship and start telling the point of view from the point of view of a doctor. So now it's not Carver telling the story, it's somebody else. It has become the case that nobody ever will hear Nick Ames tell his story. It's always about key people who interact with him telling their stories. He is sort of a, a foil in the background that these characters react to and brings out their character. And this became now a pattern of odd-numbered chapters are the investigation into the mutiny. Even-numbered chapters are flashbacks to how these people met Nick Ames. Back and forth and back and forth, converging where eventually... The flashback is the incident that's getting him accused of mutiny. Mm. And the next flashback is when the investigator gets assigned this case 
because she's the only one who, through orbital mechanics, can get to the ship on time. So it's her flashback. And so this was back and forth and back and forth, and I'm loving this. Citizen Kane, one of my favorite novels. I love frame stories. Um, we don't have time to get me started on How I Met Your Mother, but I think it is one of the most effective frame stories ever done. <laughs> so I'm building this thing. I love this. It's a great frame story. It was initially hard to sell, but it sold, so now I owe Rich at least a keg. <laughs> and then... It sold to 47 North, which is a division of Amazon, one of their it's their science fiction and fantasy publishing imprint. Okay. And being part of Amazon, they can promote it if they like it. It turns out my editor at that time, he had to leave for family reasons, but my editor at that time, he edited their science fiction line. He loved mystery and he loved romance. I wrote a science fiction mystery with romance. I more or less aimed it at him, and editors have the power to fight for your book if they believe in it. That's cool. He fought yeah. for it to get, first to get it bought, and then to get it included in Amazon promotional opportunities, including something they call first reads, mm. which is books you can't buy until next month, but if you're a Prime member, here are eight books you can buy next month, but this month you can get two of them for free. And you can buy the others at a discount. And you can get the print of the others at a discount. And this email goes out to every single Prime member across the world. When that book came out, the month of, was it October or November, I forget, of, of 2018, I had the number one science fiction book on Amazon for the month. Wow. My book was my, my ebook. My ebook was never below number eight for that month because they have eight in the program. So mine was one of the eight. And it's just a matter of which genre was the one that most people like. So I was never really number one across all genres, but I was number one in science fiction, number eight everywhere. That's cool. So this is why I owe Rich multiple kegs of beer. <laughs> From there came the last campaign as a sequel. And more will probably come. Uh, we'll have to see if I can interest uh, 47 North in more. That's a separate question because the next book was edited by a different editor. Professional, wonderful woman, did a great job. Didn't love the book and promote it like the first editor did. Mm. So it wasn't as successful. I think it's a damn fine good book. Mm -hmm. I think it is more personal because now it's deep in the mind of his wife and her conflicts between him still being cantankerous and arrogant and irritating and her having to do a professional job but building a new career after one has crashed. Mm. Shout out to Rich. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> He's a wow. great writer also. R.P.L. Yeah. Johnson. Look for his stuff. Wow. Martin, this has been a great conversation. Thank you. Um, it's been great getting to know you and very fascinating person. Um, for people who want to know more about you or want to buy your books, what are what's the best place to find you? Or is Amazon like the best place to buy your books? Uh, Shoemaker.space is the place to find me. And I've got pages for my books on there. I, I love Amazon in general. I, I give them way too much money. I've probably given them more money than they've given me. Um, I almost definitely gave them more money than they've given me, but 
I believe you should support the bookstores you believe in. And you can find them on barnesandnoble.com and various other sites. You can find them in bookstore, is it bookstore.com or is it bookstore.org? There's a new website for independent bookstores. Oh, wow. Which is, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's, oh. it's really cool because you can order online and say, I want this bookstore, who's part of your program, to be considered the seller for this for whatever payments go out. And so it's a way for the independents to have a presence not as big as Amazon's, but to have a presence that's fairly big because it's hundreds of independent bookstores across the country. Um, and, and it's also a good place to find your local independent bookstores. So it is a good approach. Um, I am not going to be offended at anybody finding my stuff anywhere. Um, I, I love Audible actually because of my commuting, I tend to listen to books more than read them these days. I love Audible and I there will make a specific recommendation. And I know this is hubris, but my favorite audiobook of all time is The Last Dance. Absolute favorite for a specific reason. It is a story where we have the investigator telling the story and then a person testifying. Investigator, person, investigator. And what I wanted in my wildest dreams was she would have one voice actor and each of the people telling their story would have another. I didn't even dare ask for it. They did it. Uh, and so, nice touch. so <laughs> I know self-interest, but I love that book for exactly that reason. So Audible is where you find pretty much all my audio. Um, you will not sadly find The Last Dance or The Last Campaign in some bookstores because as a policy, they do not carry Amazon imprints. Okay. They'll order it for you. You can buy my stuff from Barnes and Noble's website easily. You will not find Last Dance and Last Campaign in a Barnes and Noble. You will find Today I Am Carrie because that was from Bain. Okay. So that is their business choice. They have the right to make that choice. It just doesn't help my, my ego to walk into a Barnes and Noble and not find my book on the shelf. <laughs> and that's the last dance not to be confused with the Chicago Bulls documentary that came out in At 2020. Exactly <laughs> the same time. Was it really? It, it was like a month and a half ahead of my book coming oh. out. And I pointed this out to my editor and he said, yeah, keep looking. That title has appeared a dozen times at various times and places. It just happens. Titles get reused. <laughs> so maybe, maybe some people saw my stuff because they were doing a search and bought something they wouldn't have bought otherwise. <laughs> the original well, title was Mutiny on the Aldern Express. And at 47 North, which is Amazon, marketing has almost the ultimate power because their job is to sell stuff. Mm -hmm. That's, I mean, that's where the money comes from. So marketing has huge influence. They run the first reads program. Marketing decides if you get into that program or not. Mm -hmm. Marketing said, we're not putting that book into the program with that title. It's too geeky. It's too niche. No one is going to look at it under that title except for hardcore science fiction fans. We want another title. Mm -hmm. Come up with another title. Here are some suggestions. And one of those was the title of, I 
think it's chapter 15 of the book, I forget exactly which one, was called The Last Dance. And they said, this is a title we can work with. I said, how do I object? It's my title I use. It, and it is thematically very crucial to the book. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And so it's like, yeah, I can go with that. That's fine. <laughs> well, Martin, thank you very much thank for you. doing this. Uh, I'm going to include uh, links in the description of the video or in the episode. Um, no, this has been great. Uh, I wish you all the best uh, going forward on all your future projects and, and your presentation today, yep. um, which we're getting you out right on time for that. Or it's 1139, yeah. so. I, honestly, my presentation isn't until 1. Oh, okay. The business meeting is at noon. Oh, right, right. Well, I, yeah, no, I enjoyed this. Um, Thank you. It has been absolutely not enough time. Yeah, I know. We could, we could go into, yeah, so much more. We'll have to have you back. I'd then. be happy to. Yeah, that would be As really I cool. warn people, getting me to talk is easy. It's getting me to shut up is the problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, everybody, um, Martin, thanks again. Um, thank you, everybody, for listening, too. Uh, this has been Cheetash. My name is Chris, and take care, everybody.